First Peter 1, verses 22 to chapter 2, verse 3. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're continuing in our sermon series in 1 Peter, and we come to a place where the title that I gave this is Deep Community in the Gospel Life. And I think that when we hear the word community, we begin to think of what is community to me. We want to know and we have definitions of of what community means. Now it can be very broad and general. We might think of a community center where there's people within a city or a a town or something that are able to gather together and they spend time together. And so we think, well, it's a gathering of people. It's something that people do together. Perhaps maybe, uh, now this doesn't happen in Fremantle, but for some of you who live further out, there are actual like neighborhoods that are built that they put schools in the middle of and that they put recreation things in the middle of and they sort of design them. I actually spent some of my life selling in communities like that. Uh, One of the communities that I sold was a community named Brentwood. It had 798 homes in it. And all sorts of different people moved into it, all sorts of, and there were different amenities. And basically outside of having to go to grocery store, You didn't have to leave that community. You had everything that you needed there. The school was there. Everything else was there. And so we called it a community. But is that really what a community is? Is community something deeper? Is community something more than that? Well, that's what 1 Peter here is going to talk to us about. It's going to give us an understanding of really what deep community is in the gospel life. But why is that important to us? I told you a couple of weeks ago that I've been reading a book called Australia Reimagined by Hugh McKay. Uh, now, Hugh is a, a social scientist, and he uh, uh, has wonderful works that he does through uh, statistics. Now, some people like some of his books, and some people don't like some of his books, and he can be dry sometimes, and he, uh, you know, but it, it's been fascinating for me. And one of the things that he's talking about in Australia Reimagined is the fact that we really live in this sort of Uh, uh, life that has caused us to be fragmented and in being fragmented we have become over anxious that that we live in a life that that we are just completely and utterly disconnected and one of the things that he says is because we live in a, a world that values the individual above the community And that in valuing the individual over the community, that it's caused us to not recognize that we need each other. He puts it this way. He says that we at this point 
in society individually seem to be very satisfied. Social scientists ask, are you satisfied with your life? And most people in Australia, a majority, will say, yes, I'm satisfied with where my life is at. But then when they ask about the standard of life in Australia, are you guys hearing a buzz? I am too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome. You would not have wanted me to plug in. So he says this, that individually we are satisfied. But when we think about Australia as a whole, when people are asked, what do you think about life in Australia right now? How it is? People have a very pessimistic view of it. So individually they think, well, my life's going okay, but Australia is going to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> right? What he says is this points to one of the greatest hazards of our fragmented society. It's a sign of just how far off course our rampant individualism has blown us. It suggests that many of us have lost sight of our true nature as people who belong to a society. That we are each other for us organically linked to the whole. That society's problems are our problems. And that society's pains are our pains. Does that resonate with you at all? That some place that you feel like, boy, sometimes I feel like I'm doing okay, but when I look at the world, it's not that bad. And, and the reality is, is that if you think the world is bad, then, then it's affecting you because you're connected. Or if you think your life is going okay, then there might be a way for you to push into the world because you're connected. Now part of the problem that Hugh says is that all the things that we used to rely on, that we used to put trust in, government, religion, all those things have caused us to have a great distrust. And so it's hard for us to find the things to connect with. And I would say Peter would agree with this. That religion and all those things, uh, uh, society says this is the thing that you can trust that will bring us all together. They fall short. He points that out for us here. He gives us a pathway into what this deeper community, this thing that really deep down all of us are longing for. And he says that it happens through the word through the word. Okay. That, that maybe seems odd to you. That maybe seems strange to you. Let me reread our passage. It says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, the gospel, the word, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flowers of the grass, and the grass withers and the flowers fail, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that has been preached to you. 
So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And like newborn babies, long for the spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up in your salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. What he's saying is that the way we get in gospel living to deeper community, to what God has really called us to, is by going to the Word and by obeying it. He says it's happened first to you and then that you remain in it. Look, he says, having purified your soul by obedience to the truth. Look, religion says this to us. If I obey, God will love me. But the word of God says this. Because God loves me, I will obey. When Peter says to us, you have to purify yourself, the interesting thing is he's using this thing that's called a perfect participle. It signifies that this purification is an ongoing state, that it happened at one point and that it keeps on going. We know this to be true for us. So it's by obeying the truth or the gospel that we are purified in a definitive way, even though we must grow into it. Hebrews 10, verse 4 notes this. It's by Jesus' one sacrifice he has made us perfect forever those who are being made holy. To be made perfect forever is the definitive element. It's the thing that is done. To be made holy is a progression. So both are true. Huh? Sounds like our first sermon. But the gospel life is both and. It's not either or. You see, so what does this obedience look like? What does it mean for us to move to a place of obedience to the word? Well, let's get to that in a minute. We should first talk about what the word really is and what God means by that word. Well, the word is two things for us. The word is this, this thing called the Bible that we go to, that we see, that we have, that we get to hold, that we study, that we deep inside of us, that we want to hide it in our hearts so that we cannot sin against God. That's one thing that the Word is. But I think sometimes we look at it and go, good, so if I study this and I know this and I understand it, then I'm being obedient. That's not the case. Oftentimes, in my life, there are plenty of places that I know and understand. But you know what I still like to do? Jump up on the throne of God and say, let me take control. The Word tells me and reminds me, and I've learned it, and I know it, and I say, yes, God's in control. He's the one who knows what's best for me. And yet, I jump up on the throne. So I know it, but I don't know it. Right? It's not made that transition from my head to my heart. Sometimes we can get to the place where we think, as long as we get our doctrine correct, then we'll be good. If we get that right, then everything will work itself out. That's not saying that doctrine's not important. It is. But it's not the thing that the Bible is about. What's the Bible about? 
John, the evangelist, tells us that Jesus Christ is the Word. That He is the incarnate Son of God to whom all Scripture, everything that we read, bears witness to. As a matter of fact, John 5, 39 reminds us that if you search the Scriptures, you do this because you think that in them you'll have eternal life. He says, no, they bear witness to me, is what Jesus says. Thus, <laughs> the witness of the revelation of God is this. The Scripture points towards Jesus. He even says again that if you believed in Moses, you would believed in me. Why? Because he wrote about me. Look, everything that we find in Scripture is all and completely from the very beginning to Moses to the prophets. All of them are only interpreted most correctly through Jesus Christ himself. That in him he is the truth and the glory made manifest to us. So not only is, are, are those words Scripture to us, but they are also pointing us to who the word is. And if I recognize and begin to see that the Word is Jesus, then I begin to understand it's not about my knowledge, it's about my heart. And if my heart gets grabbed hold of by the Word, then my knowledge wants to follow. It wants to know more about this Word. It wants to know where is this Word taking me? How does this Word care for me? Where is He going? And so above all things, when we come to Scripture, we have to have it lead us to who Jesus is. And when we see Jesus, we fall in love with Him all over again. Because He is the one who is all of who God is. He is everything. So the first thing that we have to recognize is that we go to the Word. We go to Christ. That if we want to move in a gospel life to deeper community, it can only be done through Christ. And it is this imperishable seed that we've been born with. It is this thing that has caused us to be raised in Christ. That's where he says that. Since you've been born again of an imperishable seed, something that does not fade away. And then what does he describe? The Word. That's how we know Peter is speaking about Jesus here to us. Now that doesn't mean you should put away your Bibles and just say, I know Jesus. Because the Bible helps us know who Jesus is. It helps us understand what he has, what he does, what he has for us. And so we have to move to that place. How does that outgrowth then? What happens when we're in the Word? What happens when we're resting in the Word? When our hearts are being filled up with the Word? What happens when, as Peter says here, like newborn infants, you can't get enough of the Word? Um, when my baby sister was born and my mom was feeding her, I was jealous of that. I was only three. And I would see that my baby sister wanted to eat. She loved to eat. She 
craved it. I, I watched that with my own children as they got older. Wasn't jealous by that point. I kind of learned, you know, physiology and like biology and things like that. But when my baby sister was born, I, I remember wanting to participate, wanting to feed her, because it sounded like that would be a great thing to do. It, it looked, and like, it's clear that that my sister loved my mom, like she couldn't get enough of my mom, and particularly the nutrition that she was giving her, but she couldn't get enough. And so I had a brilliant idea. I imagined that my thumb possessed chocolate milk. Because if milk was good, what's better than milk? So I would go to my mom and say, I know Gretchen wants to eat, but I, I've got chocolate milk in my thumb, and I bet she would like that better. And so I would put in the milk, and I would put in the chocolate, and I would stir it up, and I would get it to my thumb, <laughs> and then I would stick my thumb into her milk. And she would suck on it for a few minutes, and then she would get it out of her mouth as quickly as possible, probably because it tasted like dirt. But she would get it out, and not chocolate milk. She would get it out, and where would she go? Back to my mom. Couldn't get enough. There are so many poor substitutes, false images of the Word of God. There are so many things that we bring into our lives that we put in place of who Jesus is, the Word. Sometimes it's doctrine. Sometimes it's a cause. That if we all just get behind, if everybody would just get behind this cause, this cause will get everything right. But they're sad, sad substitutions to the spiritual milk that is the word, that is knowing Christ. Why? Because Christ shows us most completely and fully that God is relentless in his loving pursuit to bring us back into whole relationship with him, with ourselves, with others, and with place. And so while it might taste like chocolate milk in our minds, it's dirt. And Jesus stands up and says, crave me. Like a baby craves pure spiritual milk. And when we do that, then we move automatically. We can't help but move into deep community. Why is that? Bonhoeffer puts it this way. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, when God had mercy on us, when God revealed Jesus Christ to us as our brother, when God won our hearts by God's own love, our instruction in Christian love began at the same time. When God was merciful to us, we learned to be merciful to one another. When we received forgiveness instead of judgment, we too were made ready to forgive each other. What God did to us, we then owed to others. The more we received, the more we were able to give. And the more meager our love is to one another the less we are living by God's mercy and love. 
Thus, God taught us to encounter one another as God has encountered us through Christ. Romans 15, 7. Welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. That's the reason why one of our postures here at the Fremantle Church is that we are a posture of welcome a place where you can belong before you believe. And so, listen, if you're here and you're like, I'm not sure about all that stuff, perfect. (laughs) You're right at the right place. And understand that many of us walk this circle where we are in unbelief, moving towards belief, and moving back up towards unbelief. Because there's things that I forget about the goodness of God. There are things that I don't trust about the goodness of God. And he says, but if you crave me and you get to know me and you understand that I'm the word that dwells within you, then that cycle, even though it happens, does not relegate you away. You are welcome in. He goes on to say that Christian community is not the ideal that we have to realize, but it's the reality created by God in Christ in which we already participate. The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all our community is in Jesus alone, the more calmly we learn to pray and seek and hope for it. As we move into understanding the word, it can't help but move us into this deep community, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. The outcome, the outgrowth for a, not just the salvation of your souls, not just to get you from darkness to light, but for a sincere brotherly love. God came to bring us into whole relationship with one another. He wants us to know one another. The word sincere is deep. All in. Can't get enough of this person. That's scary. Because I know some of you look at me and you're thinking, I'm not sure that I want to be all in with that guy. Back at you. But God says, no, no, I gather my people together. I'm the one who make you new. I'm the one who puts you in this place. And I will give you the ability to love one another. I will give you the ability to know one another. Brotherly and sisterly love involves serious effort. It means in earnest we have to go down towards one another. And enter in with one another. He goes on to tell us that we have to, what? Put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Not that we ourselves put it away, but that God himself causes those things to be put away. How often in our lives do we step into a place of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander? Probably more often than we'd like to admit. But God says, no, I've dealt with that. I've taken it out. Here again what Bonhoeffer said. It's not something we're attaining to. It's not an aspirational statement. 
It is a statement of fact, of reality. That we are in this place where we can love fully, deeply, sincerely towards one another. And so what does that look like? It looks like us moving in the path of Jesus. Jesus who is the Word incarnate, full of grace and truth. Peter Scazzaro is a pastor in the States and he's written a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality and Emotionally Healthy Spiritual uh, Church. And in it, he talks about what does incarnation mean? What does it look like for us? And he says it's three things. One, it is where we enter in. All right? So that's, that, that's us saying, I'm going to enter into somebody else's life. I'm going to enter into their world. I'm going to enter into where they're at. It's that place where we learn, as we hear in 1 Corinthians, that the church is what? Supposed to mourn with those who mourn and celebrate with those who celebrate. It means we have to be involved in their lives to know where they're at. We enter in. We don't enter in coming in saying, I'm here to save you. We enter in as a servant. Why? Because that's how Jesus entered in. Yes, he's there to save, but he's there as a servant to save. Isaiah reminds us that he's not only a servant, he's the suffering servant. Think about the people that Peter is writing to here. If you remember from two Sundays ago, we recognize that these were people who were in the culture, right? They were accepted. And by then being reborn into Christ, they were rejected. That means some of them, their families weren't talking to them anymore. That means some of them, they didn't have relationships that they used to have anymore. And so who's their relationship now? It's this family. Yet they still lived in the world. And so they had to step back in. Serving, caring. So that's the first way. And so we, in our lives, as those of us who have been brought from life to death, we have to go in and enter into people's lives. That means we have to enter into each other's lives. That means we have to enter into the lives of those around us, outside of these walls. That means that God is constantly and always intervening by bringing people to us, and us to people. And so we recognize them for who they are and the delight that they are in Christ. Right? That they were created by God, so they deserve delight, not scorn. Whether I agree with them or disagree with them. Whether I think they're going down the right path or going down the wrong path. That doesn't determine my view of them. My view of them is as Christ's view of them, which is delight. Now, sometimes that delight means discipline. And sometimes that delight means healing. And those aren't mutually exclusive either. Because I know when I am disciplined by a loving Father, I'm healed. So we enter in. The second thing that he says incarnation is, is that we maintain ourself. Too often we can enter in and lose the particularness of who God made us. We can lose who we are and how God made us. One of the great things I love uh, about us as a group is this, that we are diverse. We're diverse in theology, we're diverse in socioeconomics, we're diverse, and we can be diverse in many other ways. But we're diverse across the board. 
I love it because when we're gathered together, we recognize that our diverseness should never cause us not to have unity. But unity is not uniformity. Uniformity means that we all agree and we're all right and we all dress alike and we've got our khakis on and our blue shirts. You guys didn't get the memo. No. The world wants unanimity. The world wants unanimity. Why? Because then it can control and lead and manipulate. What God desires is unity, which He only brings through Jesus Christ. So, we can't lose who we are. God made you who you are, particularly. Now, just as a side note here, I want you to hear this. Because I think it goes back to why we have rampant individualism. Sadly, Christianity sometimes is understood as, as Jesus saved me. And that my relationship with Jesus is me and Jesus alone. I want you to hear me. Jesus saved you in your particularness. You, particularly, yes. But he didn't save you personally. Not just to save you. He saved you and saved the world. <laughs> he saved you and brought you in to community. So, we have to get rid of this mindset that, oh, Jesus is just for me. He was only for me. No, he was never just for you. He is for you, but he's not just for you. He's for everything and all people. The cool thing about that is, is that he does know me particularly. That's how he knew to save me. And he came to me particularly. And so he doesn't want you to lose who you are. Now, if it doesn't line up with the truth, he's going to get rid of it. But if it lines up with the truth, he's going to celebrate it and bring it in. So first, we have to enter in. Second, we have to maintain self. And then third, we have to live with the both and. <laughs> we have to understand this. There's a tension there that we hold both of them. That in moving in, every time I encounter somebody, I'm changed. And when I walk away, a little piece of them is with me, and a little piece of me is with them. That, that every interaction that I have is going to do something to my psyche, to my spiritual life, to my physical life, to my ability to communicate and live and breathe and move with other people. And so that there is a tension always between me going all in and losing my particularness or standing to the side and being it's only about me and everything has to look like me and forgetting about God calling us in. Well, how does that work? Let's go back to the Word. Jesus came as a Savior. In doing it completely, in coming in and saying, I've come to serve you, He comes in and He listens, and He heals, and He touches, and He pursues, and He engages. He never loses himself, but he enters in completely. And so we run deep into that place, into the word of God. 
into Jesus Christ himself. My hope My hope is that we will have grace with one another. Because when we come to a passage like this that calls us to deep, radical, sincere love for one another, it's very easy for me to say, it's not going to (laughs) happen, and to give up. My hope is that we will have grace with one another so that we can step into those places and encourage one another and say to one another, I love you and I know that you love me, but I'm hurting. Or I think that I've hurt you. We have to be able to have open dialogue with one another where we are communicating with one another and saying, hard things and good things. And it starts in our own hearts, in our own lives, and then in our families, and then to this place. And then it spreads out from this place into Fremantle and those that we encounter there. And we can only do that if we crave Christ. And so I pray that we will crave Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, you are good to us. We pray that these words will be your words and that that if they're not your words, that they will return void, that they will burn up. But if they are your words, Lord, I just pray that they will take root in our heart and give you glory and honor. It's in your name we pray. Amen.